how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Noza Chape tracks the rebuilding of the Japanese football club in Brazil after November 28, 2016 plane crash left only three players alive. Through exclusive access to the families of the deceased and three severely injured players, the documentary investigates the community's many challenges in the aftermath of a tragedy. Director Michael Zimbalas talks about working with his brothers Jeff, how they got started with the 30 for 30 series, specifically the two Escobars, why they love stories with the sports element, even though these stories are really about the humanistic universal themes. Plus, they share some details about their fictional Netflix movie, Pele, Birth of a Nation. And then Michael tells us about his new films, Give Us This Day and Momentum Generation. A group of teenagers in Hawaii enter the world of professional competitive surfing in the 1990s. Some of these include Thomas DeLong, Shane Dorian, and Kelly Slater. Let's see, I, you know, I was actually running a theater company in Mexico, um, and my brother uh, studied film at Brown and went on to teach at the main photographic workshops and then the New York Film Academy in, um, in New York. And uh, he was making a film down in Brazil uh, called Favela Rising, a, a feature documentary uh, that got uh, shortlisted for the Oscar um, when it came out and played at uh, festivals uh, all over the world. And I um, had just finished a play. My brother actually came to Mexico and saw a play that I had written and directed with a friend. And, um, you know, I, I, at that point was interested in kind of branching out from what I was doing. And he was interested in um, sort of developing out the film biz. And so we started working together and that was, 14 years ago um, now. So from there, we actually, um, the first thing we started doing together were um, documentary uh, projects for international development foundations and banks that uh, tended to use them to look at different, um, different innovative forms of development from microloans to uh, incub business incubators in developing uh, de developing countries and areas, and so we did that. And then we were in Colombia working on a uh, a story about the. Uh, we met with some uh, girls who uh, had lost their parents and were orphans, and 
father had been a union worker who um, had been shot and killed. And so we were looking and developing that story when ESPN reached out uh, and they were starting their 30 for 30 series and sort of presented this idea of, you know, documentaries that were looking at the intersection of sports and society and asked us to pitch some ideas. And I think the, the two Escobars was one of five ideas that we pitched and probably the one that we thought was the least likely to uh, catch their interest, given that it was very not sports oriented and foreign language based in Colombia. But that was the one that they uh, they were most interested in. And then we started working on that and that became our first um uh, feature film that we did together. So was it almost coincidental? Were you, were you also into sports? Were you into uh, soccer and football, that, things like that as well? Uh, we grew up as athletes and, you know, we, we both played soccer growing up, but we hadn't really been like soccer aficionados. Um, I think it was probably when we both started living and working in Latin America and saw what, what the, what football as it were uh, is to a society. And that was what was really interesting to us is like for me seeing the world cup living in Mexico and seeing how it was so intrinsically tied to a culture and uh, an identity of a people way beyond anything that we have in, in the U S um, that was really the, the area of it that interests me. And to this day, I think when we look at, at uh, stories that have, uh, a sports element to them. We're, we're very, very rarely are we attracted to the sports element. We're really looking at how is this, uh, is this really, um, you know, a humanistic story and a universal story that has themes and messages amongst the people involved that are interesting, that are almost exclusively happen off the, off the pitch, off the field. Well, if you remember, what was that first pitch like for the two Escobars when you were pitching that idea? Well, at that time, we, you know, we were we were working in Colombia, and uh, our Colombian friends. I mean, Jeff and I both remembered when Andres Escobar had scored the scored the own goal on on his team in 90, in the '94 World Cup, and then you know the news broke ten days later that he'd been murdered, and we I think had had some conversations with some of our friends, um, and even our Colombian friends at that time uh, didn't didn't really know what had happened, what, why he had been killed, who had killed him. And there was this inkling of an idea that Pablo Escobar had something to do with Andres' teams. And so that was, that was as much as we knew at that time. And that was effectively the pitch was who killed Andres Escobar and why, and what, if anything, did Pablo Escobar have to do with it? I mean, I don't think we really even had an understanding of this phenomenon known as narco football or narco soccer that, you know, the, the film kind of evolved from just a pure investigative journalism piece about the murder of one person to the investigation of a national phenomenon that was this marriage of cocaine billionaires with the soccer teams they love as laundering machines and competitive, uh, you know, trophies that they would play off each other to really what became the study of national identity during an era of, you know, Colombia's history, a dark era that was told through the lens of these two men. And in the end, like kind of the fourth evolution returned to the first, which is that we realized that really the whole film was the narrative of who killed Andres Escobar and why, and you kind of had to understand that larger 
context and and the story of the national identity to understand why it happened, how it happened, and what its impact was. When you're kind of starting out like that, I mean, in, in terms of investigative journalism, where you might be making something shorter versus making a, a full-length documentary, is there any fear going into that where you don't really know what the ending is going to be? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think, you know, and it depends, it's, it's a project by project basis. I mean, no Sachape, um, you know, the documentary that um, we're, we're, we just released with Fox Sports, that was really a cinema verite story where, you know, this is the, I've lived part time on and off since the two Escobars in Medellin. And that's, of course, where the plane crash happened from the Chapecoense soccer team. And so I had been following the story closely, my brother as well. And uh, when Fox reached out to us, because Fox Sports had lost six of their colleagues in the, in the crash. So they were deeply affected. And Gabe Spitzer over there reached out to us and our partner, Colby Goddard, and asked if we were interested in doing a documentary on the response, what was just what was going to happen, uh, you know, in response to this crash. I mean, that was just a couple weeks after the crash. And, you know, literally, we didn't even know at that point whether the, the club was going to decide to close its doors or whether they were going to rebuild and if they were going to rebuild, when were they going to rebuild? And so, you know, we didn't know where the beginning necessarily was other than that there had been this crash and there had been this amazing Cinderella season, you know, and this story, Cinderella story, really, of how this club came out of nothing in this remote city and, you know, had risen to the top echelons of South American uh, soccer. And um, and then every step of the way in that film, you know, the decision to rebuild, the decision to get back on the field and play a game less than two months after the crash, uh, the way that season unfolded, the lawsuits that came out of the woodworks from the widows of those who had passed away against the club, which was really in many ways like suing one's own family. I mean, that's how tightly knit this community was all the way up until really the end of that story where, uh, you know, we knew kind of at some point we realized the climax of our film was going to be when the 2017 team flew the same faded route as it were from Brazil up to Medellin, Colombia to play the final of the Recopa, which is one of the most uh, prestigious tournaments in all of South America. And incidentally, the, it was the final that the team had been qualified for by the previous year's team that passed away. Uh, we knew that was going to be kind of our climax, but we were as surprised as everyone that really the, the heart, the emotional climax of the story was not the game, but the, the return to the crash site. Um, and so we're sort of furiously scribbling our outlines and, you know, rearranging our, uh, all of our paper outlines and our edits and sequences uh, as we go along in, in a process like that where the ending is constantly shifting. And even after that, we were deep into our edit to have, to uh, give a little spoiler here, but to have one of the survivors of the crash actually return to the field in a friendly against Barcelona and, you know, play against Messi uh, during the same you know, less than a year after the crash, I think like we didn't see that coming and that suddenly became the sort of the, the final, um, the final scene of the film. So that was a long winded answer saying that uh, we very rarely know the endings, but obviously when you're doing a film that um, the, the more investigative it is and the more cinema verite present day it is, the less you're going to know 
but there are stories we've done where, you know, we, we come in with an outline that more or less approximates the three act structure that we end up with because the story's already happened and because the investigative elements are all going to fit within the narrative container that you've already more or less established. It sounds like you kind of had an, an estimated like what might be the ending. What does this look like? And like how many months were you filming? How many hours of footage did you narrow down to make this movie? Oh, wow. So we started filming at the very top of 2017. Um, basically, by the time everybody returned to the club's facilities in Chapeco, our cameras were there. We had already spoken with the remaining members of the club and uh, explained who we were and our intentions, why we were different than mainstream news media. And, you know, they were all on board. So we were fortunate to have our cameras rolling really from day one of the rebuilding effort. And the original plan was actually only to film for a month. Um, and, you know, to, to what would potentially be their first game and their first game came around and we had so many narratives that we were following, um, because we, from the onset knew we didn't want to just film with the team. We wanted to really film with the community. Uh, I think as filmmakers, our interest was really in the question of how does a family, uh, grieve the loss of a loved one, or in this case, a whole community that was an extended family grieve the loss of 71, uh, loved ones. And so that meant we were going to have multiple cameras filming with uh, not just the survivors of the crash, with the new coach and players for the team and the new president board, but also with the mayor of the city, the fan club and the families of the deceased. And so that uh, by the time one month rolled around, there was all these narratives that were just really starting off and that were really fascinating to us. And Fortunately, the, the team and their subjects and Fox were all on board to keep filming the scope of the film and ended up filming for the better part of last year of, of 2017, uh, which, yes, meant you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of Cinema Verite footage. But then we also filmed interviews, and which were often, you know, over three hours. And then we had a parallel process of collecting archives because we knew um, that we really wanted to bring to life the story of the 2016 team and also provide some deeper history of who this who this team was and what this community was. So the archival uh, footage, if you add that in, um, you know, yeah, you're in the thousands of hours of, of footage that we were working with. And then it's just a matter of, um, you know, organizational uh, processes that, we put in place from the onset so that we were able to, you know, create spreadsheets of all the scenes that we were filming with the date, the time of day, you know, what the camera work was like, who the, who the subjects were that were being filmed there. And then as we went along and as our sort of broader outline started to get more detailed, we took um, all of that and put it into what ended up being, I think, a 120 page paper outline that became a, you know, 10 hour string out that then got whittled down into a feature film length. Do you do like, um, if you're traveling and things, do you do B-roll at the same time? Are there shots you have to go back for when you're making a movie like this? Yeah, inevitably. Um, but yeah, I mean, B-roll, it's funny cause in, in cinema verite, it's a, it's hard to distinguish B-roll from A-roll because, <laughs> Um, you never know. I mean, you know, in the edit, you might say, um, let's bring in some B-roll here. Um, but really the, you know, what you're filming is your A-roll. 
Um, and I think, uh, we, you know, we did, we did go back, um, to, you know, it's funny in this particular film, there wasn't a whole lot of like traditional quote unquote pickup shoots because, um, it was really more like as we were editing it, we hadn't closed, we hadn't shut down production. You know, we knew that production was going to run concurrent with the edit. So it was really just more a matter of getting more and more targeted with production as we went forward. Uh, the plan was still, you know, our, our production budget was still in place to continue shooting. And it was just a matter of saying, okay, we know we don't need more from this, this uh, narrative and what we want is this thread and oh, this thing just happened, you know, like, like Alain, you know, getting greenlit to be a, a starter in that game against Barcelona. Okay, we're definitely, I mean, we kind of knew we were going to Barcelona anyway, but that's where it was like, all right, we're definitely going to Barcelona. Okay, so they weren't really traditional pickups in the way that uh, we've done in other films. You touched on this briefly uh, in terms of sincerity, but I imagine it can be hard to get some of these interviews. You do have a great catalog now, but what advice might you have for, you know, novice filmmakers? new documentary makers and, and kind of building that trust right away, what advice might you have for those people? Well, it's, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, generally it's, it's case by case, depending on what the film is. I think, um, there's been a number of films we've worked on documentary films where you're, um, you know, no such option the two Escobars, um, definitely prominent among them where you're going to be, um, approaching people um, with a proposal to film um, their lives and to talk about a part of their life that is uh, very emotionally charged, very difficult, and sometimes politically and uh, politically difficult and, and raises certain safety questions as well. So um, we, you know, I mean, I think the, the approach that we, my brother and I, and really our, our whole crew, in this case, Julian Duque, who is our, our co-director, um, and our crew is almost uh, entirely Brazilian and Colombian, um, which was, I think, a good start, right, to be able to um, approach somebody from at least the same language that they speak, I think is pretty important. And then to have just an open and honest conversation about um this is who we are. This is what our interest is. Um, and to listen to what the, the subject's interest is. And ideally there's an interest in, in getting the story out. And in this case, I think a lot of people who participated felt that unlike the news media that were popping in and out for a quick story, this was an opportunity to delve deeper and really create, um, this homage to those who had passed away and that that was an important um, part of the story for them to, to get out into the world. And so that's, that to me is kind of the key because then you're aligned in your missions, which is to get this story out. And there's a lot of conversation often about, um, you know, the neutrality and journalistic integrity that we come to the table with, which means that, you know, we're very clear up front that, nobody's going to have, we're not biased coming into the story that we're going to try and give everyone a voice, which often means that if, you know, you're in conflict with somebody else that we're most likely going to film with that person and let them tell their side of the story. And we want to be upfront about that. And, and then nobody's going to have any editorial control, 
you know, nobody's going to get to weigh in on what the edit is and nobody's going to receive any money and all those things that, like, in this case, that was a really important thing for, um, you know, like the widows that were upset with the way that the club had handled, um, you know, the whole tragedy. It was super important for them to hear that the was not going to have editorial control. The club was not receiving any money and that effectively they were being offered the same platform that the club was. So I think that's, that's pretty key. And then there's just the, the constancy of, you know, being there day in and day out and um, riding that balance between um, pushing for access and knowing when, you know, you respectfully need to back off. And particularly in this case where you have everybody that was participating was grieving in some way and in their own way at their own velocity. So it often meant that, you know, we would need to give them a week or two uh, when they asked for it to sort of go into their own shell and, and process without the cameras around. But then at the same time, knowing when, you know, it's important to say, hey, look, we want to film the tough stuff. We don't, you know, we want this to be the story warts and all, because that's what's going to reach the most people. People don't want to just see some sugar-coated story. So it's up to you, but we would like to ask that you reconsider whether you, you let us film this thing that you're going to do. So in the middle of these document documentaries, you guys made a, a fictional movie about Pele. I believe you wrote and directed it, and Brian Grazer was the po the producer. How did that film come about? Yeah, we um we let's see that came about just um, through we got connected with Imagine through our agents, and um, we specifically knew that they were in contention to get the rights to uh, tell Pele's story. Um, and we met with them and, uh, they had seen our past work and, uh, we of course knew their past work and talked about the story and our connection to the story and our vision for, uh, how it might be told. And, um, you know, I think they, they ended up securing the rights and then meeting with a bunch of writer directors and deciding that, uh, we, we were the right fit for the project. And then we went, and, uh, you know, began the, the right, you know, we met with Pele, we had a lot of conversations, did a lot of research, talked to others, and then put together the, the screenplay uh, for the project and got it greenlit and financed and, um, and, and then went and, and directed it. In fact, in that case, I don't think we were initially, I think we everybody was aware that we wanted to direct the film, but I don't think that was actually locked in until the screenplay was in place and the, the finance had been secured. Well, thank you for your time. Um, I see one other film listed. Is that, do you have another movie you'd like to say anything about that's coming out in the next year or two? Yeah, we actually have two um, two other feature docs that we're releasing this year. One of them is called Momentum Generation. That is the story of Kelly Slater, Rob Machado, Shane Dorian, Kalani Rob, Taylor Knox, Taylor Steele, the whole group of momentum generation surfers that really kind of um, bust onto this, the cultural scene in the 90s and redefined um, not just what surfing was, mainstream culture um, in, in a way that nobody has since. And then we have a uh, film called Give Us This Day that follows it's a cinema verite film following uh, three police officers and uh three residents living in east st louis which is the city with the highest homicide rate in the u.s thank you so much for tuning into the show 
Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you'll also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.